Uh, the first week we began in Philippians chapter 4, just by way of review. Uh, that's the place I would uh, bring anyone to, not Jeremiah Burroughs' book, first and foremost, but to what the Apostle Paul uh, says in Philippians 4. Could someone read that for us? Philippians 4, 12 and 13. All right, fantastic. So the Apostle Paul is there talking in that context about money that the Philippian church had sent for his support while he was in, in prison. He was expressing thanks for that. He was great, greatly uh, filled with joy at the money he received. But obviously, you know, if you just say, I'm really, really happy about the money, I mean, any pagan could say that. He, he took it as a teaching opportunity. and He wanted to stop and say, I'm not happy or joyful the way you would think. Because actually for myself, I've learned the secret of being content. I was content before the money came. I'll be content after it's spent. Um, and so my contentment is not linked to money. It never has been. It never will be. It's not linked to that. Christian contentment is independent of earthly circumstances. And so that word content, um, I've learned to be content, means self-sufficient, which needs to be understood in the context of Christian theology is not independent from God or independent from Christ. Not at all. Heaven forbid. Uh, much of our sanctification is to teach us to be increasingly aware of our dependence on Christ, that he's the vine, we are the branches, apart from him we could do nothing. Actually, God wants more and more of that from us. He wants you to express more and more dependence on him all the time. He doesn't want you to think you can do anything apart from Jesus. He wants you to express dependence on him at every moment in prayer. I think that's what praying without ceasing is all about. Lord, apart from you, I can't even drive home safely. Apart from you, I can't have a good conversation with my spouse. Apart from you, I can't do anything. I need, to, I need help every hour, every minute. So that's not what self-sufficient means. What self-sufficient means really is God-sufficient. Having God or having Christ, I don't need anything from the world. Now, that is true. Now, if God chooses to bring me worldly blessings, that's fine, but I don't need them. I don't have to have any one of them or all of them, actually. I don't even have to continue to be alive because my treasure's in heaven anyway. My true riches are all in heaven. They're stored in heaven. I don't, nothing can take them from me. Moth and rust cannot destroy. Thieves cannot break in and steal. I have an independent wealth that this world can't touch. And my happiness is tied to that. Where my treasure is, there my heart will be. And that's where my contentment is. That's what he's talking about. And so that's what self-sufficiency means. I've, be, I've learned a secret. Now, the word secret is very important. Uh, but this is all by way of review, but it's not obvious. You can live your Christian life without ever learning this secret. Now, that would be a great tragedy. I would hope you would see what a great waste of a day it is to not be content. And we're going to talk more about the, the evils of a murmuring heart in the future. Not today, but it is a waste of an hour. It's a waste of a day or a week to be discontent and murmuring and unhappy in what God chooses to do. That's a waste. That's a waste of day. That, I think, would be almost the definition of, of wood, hay, or stubble. If you have a day like that, it's going to get burned up on Judgment Day. What a waste. So I don't want to do that, but it's a secret to be learned. It's something you have to learn. And I think it's a beautiful combination of book learning and life learning. It's a, a beautiful combination of scriptural study, like we're doing, and then you have to live through it. You have to live through suffering. You have to live through trials and afflictions. You have to live through prosperity, live through feasting. You have to live through all of it. And then in the midst of that life, instructed by the scripture, instructed, instructed by the Holy Spirit, you can learn a secret. And it is a secret to be learned, but Paul says he's learned it. So it's, it's not so difficult that it's impossible for any of us to learn. We actually can learn it. 
So uh, Christian contentment is not a natural state, but it's a, a mystery whose secrets must be learned. Then last week I introduced you to the Puritan writer, Jeremiah Burroughs, who wrote in the 17th century, 1600s, a uh, Puritan pastor. These Puritans were pastors. They wrote very practical books on Christian living. They're long books. And we in the iPhone age are going to have to struggle to read all 283 pages. It's going to be hard. Got to hang in there. All right? Because um, our attention span has, has been shrunk somewhat. But it's worth walking through. It's archaic language. Some of the reasoning is archaic a little bit. Um, but it's very, very helpful. Uh, he divides his work into four main um, headings, fourfold outline. The nature of Christian contentment, what it is. The art and mystery of Christian contentment. Then what lessons must be learned to achieve Christian contentment. And then the glories and excellence of Christian contentment. There are some sub-points as well, and we'll walk through all that. So I'm not just going to stand and walk through uh, that fourfold outline. I just want to give, give you a sense of some of uh, how he organized um, his work. He gave this doctrine, the teaching, and that is to be well-skilled in the mystery of Christian contentment is the duty, glory, and excellence of a Christian. So well-skilled. What image comes in your mind when you think about being well-skilled in Christian contentment? What does that mean to you, well-skilled? Okay, practiced art, I love that. Like a, almost like a musical instrument, let's say. Anyone else? Okay, in the knowledge of the Word, as we get, grow in our knowledge of the Word, is that what you mean, brother? Good. Anyone else? Well-skilled in Christian contentment. When do you get to practice this uh, musical instrument? Every day. <laughs> Any chance you want. Practice it now. Practice it when I'm preaching, and I'm preaching too long, and you wonder why I haven't finished yet. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, finally honed like a, like a weapon. I like that weapon image because, you know, we really are a very destructive, powerful weapon in the hands of God against Satan's dark kingdom. Satan hates Christians that are content. I mean, they are dangerous things for him. He does not want you to be content. He's going to assault your contentment. I mean, if I can just say, when it comes to practicalities, it's this practical. Get yourself into a content state in the morning and then fight for it and defend it the rest of the day by the Spirit. That's, that's where we're going to go in terms of practicalities. In your quiet time in the morning, find scriptures and promises and things until you're happy in Jesus, and then you have to fight for it the rest of the day. So we'll get to that later on, but uh, very, very good. Now, here's the definition that we walked through very painstakingly, carefully last week. Uh, it's going to stay with us week after week after week. I don't necessarily say you have to memorize it, but I've pretty much all but memorized it. Christian contentment is defined here as that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Now, just over the, the two years on and off that I've been teaching this, I've learned to jump into the middle first and say it's a frame of spirit. So this is all review, so I'm not going to stop and ask questions about it. But frame of spirit means it's a demeanor. It's a heart state and attitude. Those would be different words. Demeanor, attitude, something like that. A frame of spirit. Um, and then it's described in uh, four ways. Sweet, inward, quiet, gracious. Sweet, I found it helpful. Burroughs doesn't do this, but this is what I find helpful. Of looking at the opposites, such as sour or bitter. So you know how sometimes you learn something positively by learning what it's not. And Paul does that in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs, etc. So it, there's a lot of negations in the definition of love in 1 Corinthians 13. So also for me, sweet as opposed to sour 
or bitter. And we know what a sour person is like or a sour outlook or a bitter person. Uh, this is the opposite. A person like this isn't sour at all. They're actually sweet. And you interact with them, the interactions you have with them, the things they say, the time you spend with them, it's a sweet time. Don't you want to be that kind of a person? Don't you not want to be a sour or bitter person? Don't you want people to delight to be around you? They're just attracted to you. You are the light of the world, Jesus said. And people are attracted to that. They just see the hope in you. And it's like, I can see the value of it. It's just hard to get there, but I, I really want to be that kind of a person. And it's inward. Uh, Burroughs said, if the attainment of true contentment were as easy as keeping it quiet outwardly, it would not meet, need much learning. So in other words, we are not in any way advocating. Hello, Randy. <laughs> Can I ask you a question? Would you be content if the Steelers lost today? Just work on that, all right? Just tell me at home fellowship, all right? Because I'll be content if the Patriots lose. I want you to know that. Or at least I'll work on it. Um, so if it were just a matter of acting, then it would just be how good an actor or actress are you? And that's not what we're talking about. We are not talking about that. We're not talking about holding your breath and acting happy and then go home and let it all out and then you're who you really are. No, I mean, don't you really want genuine contentment? Have something that's real and abiding and deep and rich inside you. It's an, in, it's an inward thing. And it's quiet as opposed to the churning and roiling of rebellion, like the churning waves. It's like that crystal sea up in heaven, completely passive or, or, or quiet under, under the hand of God. Or, you know, when Jesus said to the waves, peace, be still, quiet. It's beautiful. Uh, it's a quietness. And then there's a the key word, gracious. Anyone remember what gracious meant to this Puritan writer? What does the word gracious mean? It doesn't mean that you're a gracious person. That would be, it's true, but that's not what it means. What, what does he mean by it's, it's a gracious state? It is only possible by sovereign grace. Grace is, a, is the um, settled determination of the omnipotent God to do you good who deserved eternal wrath. That's what grace is. Big picture. That's what grace is. God is determined to do you good. And then grace also is everything that comes energetically, spiritually from God to produce good in your life. Everything. So that's grace. Salvation comes by grace. This is part of God's grace to you. It's, it's something has to come from God to you for you to be content. That's what gracious means. And so you should seek it. You should ask God for the grace of contentment. That's what it is, the grace that God gives, gracious. All right, then we jumped ahead in the second half of the uh, definition to uh, God's disposal. And we're going to spend basically the rest of our morning on God's disposal. Okay, just to lay out this morning's teaching to you. I'm going to talk about God's disposal and I'm going to talk about freely submitting to and delighting in it and give you two examples from church history. Jonathan or Sarah Edwards when her husband Jonathan died and the letter that she wrote and George Mueller preaching his own uh, dear wife's funeral and what he said at his own wife's funeral. Um, those are two very powerful examples. Then I'm going to talk about the word disposal, meaning God's decree concerning you, God's decisions concerning you, God's uh, fatherly disposal. I, I'll talk about a little bit, as I did last week, God's kingly disposal. God is a king. He makes decisions about his kingdom. It's what he does. He's not um, 
sheepish about it. He's not hesitant to make decrees or decisions about you. He doesn't shrink back from that. But we're going to talk about the doctrine that is essential to all of this. And the doctrine is the doctrine of providence. All right, providence. And we're going to talk about God's meticulous, sovereign rulership over every detail of the world. And without the doctrine of providence, contentment's not possible. If there is such a thing as karma or luck or something like that, then we're wasting our time here because God would bas basically say to you, these things that are afflicting you so much, I have no control over them. I didn't send them. They have nothing to do with me. Good luck with them. Now, that's not the God of the Bible. And I think contentment would be impossible if there were such a thing as good luck or bad luck or karma or any of those things. So that's what we're doing the rest of the day. So let's, uh, let's finish. Uh, wise and fatherly disposal. Um, God's decisions, his decrees. I'm just walking through the definition. His disposal is his decision concerning you, extending to every area of your life. There is no, no detail of your life that has not been disposed of or decided by God. He's, he's made up his mind concerning everything, your intellect, your IQ, um, your socioeconomic situation into which you were born, educational opportunities, spiritual opportunities, things that have happened to you, your height, eye color, um, everything, who you marry, how long you live, where you live, it's all part of it, and so we're going to talk about it. It's a difficult doctrine. People struggle with it. They have a hard time picturing God that meticulously involved, but we'll talk about that. But God's wise and fatherly disposal. Fatherly means that God does what's best for his children. I could have said kingly, or Burroughs could have said kingly, but that's a little more distant. So we Generally, the subjects of a king wouldn't have access to the king. He would just make decisions for the kingdom, and he would do what's best for the kingdom. But in Christianity, what's best for the kingdom and what's best for the children are the same thing. And so kingly disposal and fatherly disposal are the same thing. But fatherly is warmer. You have a feeling of the affection, the tender-hearted affection that God has for you. And it freely submits to God's uh, disposal. Freely submits. Contentment means there's no reluctance in your submission. There's no, there's no hesitation. You're not holding back. If you are, you're not content. You're still Christian, but you're not content. If you're reluctant about what God's doing in your life, you're not there yet. Uh, it's not by constraint. It's like, well, what can I do? He's God, you know? I think Job got into a frame of mind like that. I, I can't do anything. I mean, he's the king. He can do whatever he wants, but I'm not happy about it. And I think you definitely see a sense of that. Um, and not by stupidity or ignorance. We're like brute beasts, and we have no idea what's even happening. <laughs> so that's not contentment either. So you're just completely ignorant about what's happening. But it's a free act by rational people based on a spiritual judgment about God and his purposes, based on the scripture. It's a wise, rational act on the part of an intelligent being, you, to see what God's doing and, and freely submit to it and delight in it. Delight in it, actually. Freely submits to and delights in it. All right, it submits to God's disposal. Burroughs wrote this. What? It says, will you be above God? Is this not God's hand, and must your will be regarded more than God's? Oh, under, under. Get you under, O oh soul. Keep under. Keep low. Keep under God's feet. You are under God's feet, and keep under his feet. 
keep under the authority of God, the majesty of God, the sovereignty of God, the power that God has over you. To keep under, that is to submit. You know, those words are all true, but they're hard for us to hear. So when you read that, that's typical Puritan writing right there, but if you, as you read that, why would you say people would have a hard time accepting that? Under, under, be under his feet, you know, all that kind of thing. I'm not asking you to speak about yourself. I'm saying theoretically, why would someone have a hard time with that type of language? Yeah, but yet it's true. Jesus said, do not swear by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool. Well, that means the whole earth is his footstool. What does it make you? <laughs> so it's not like it isn't true. But if you're having a problem with it, doesn't that show something about you? If you wanted to say, now, wait a minute, Jesus, are you telling me the whole earth is God's footstool? His feet are on the earth? Yes. Well, I, I, don't, I have a problem with that. <laughs> well, it's not going to change the fact. It's not like the earth is going to be any less God's footstool. It just means you're having a problem. And that's, it's just good to know that's why you're discontent. We, want, we tend to go up. I think it's that devilish pride. You know how Satan said, I will ascend. I will be higher. I will, take, I will topple God from his throne, and I will take his place. Isaiah 14. All right, so that's a review from last week. So let's look at these examples of freely submitting to and delighting in God's wise and fatherly disposal. The first is just one of the great heroines in church history, Sarah Edwards. Um, just an incredibly godly woman, a woman well worth studying uh, for anybody. Any brother or sister in Christ can study, but especially a, a woman who wants to, um, to be a godly wife, a godly mother. I mean, the, the, the task of being the wife of a pastor back then was really remarkable. Uh, frequently, they would be like the hotel in the community. Like if there were visitors to the community, they would stay at the parsonage. And so she's like kind of like running a hotel. She's raising, I think, something like 11 daughters. I mean, a lot of, a lot of girls, um, and I mean, godly women, they're amazing daughters, um, you know, but just obviously a lot to look after. Um, Jonathan Edwards was reputed to spend 13 hours a day in his study with the door closed. So that left her to do anything else. <laughs> you know, you think about back then with the wood and fetching water and all this stuff in the colonial era, just what that life was like. She was an incredible woman. Uh, very, very godly. But anyway, here's what, here's what happened. Jonathan had gone down to the College of New Jersey, which became Princeton, uh, to look into taking over as president. Um, he was uh, at that point a missionary to Indians and was in the western part of North Carolina, having been fired from his congregation. If you can believe, what congregation would fire Jonathan Edwards? But one did. Uh, that's what congregations can do. Uh, so he went off and he uh, was a missionary for a little while with the Indians. And um, but then got an invitation to come and apply for uh, president of the uh, college in New Jersey. While he was there, he chose to take a smallpox inoculation, and it killed him. Uh, smallpox, as I mentioned in my sermon last week, or yeah, last week, is one of the greatest, if not the greatest, killer in human history. 500 million people, and it was just they were just beginning to understand about inoculations. And as far as I understand, what happened is his throat uh, swelled up so greatly that he couldn't take any water in, and he had a raging fever, and as I said, it killed him. Anyway, Sarah heard about the death of her husband, and she wrote a letter to her daughter, Esther. And the letter, uh, what she wrote, I think is in your hand out there. What shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us, has covered us with a dark cloud. 
Oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands on our mouths. So that's the key statement she makes in the whole letter. It's an incredible statement. Oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands on our mouths. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore his goodness that we had him, speaking about her husband, that we had him so long. But my God lives and he has my heart. Oh, what a legacy my husband and your father has left to us. We are all given to God and there I am and there I love to be. Your ever affectionate mother, Sarah Edwards. So that's incredible. What's really interesting is Esther never received the letter but died before it came to her um, of a different sickness. And as I mentioned, I think also Sarah was dead within a year. So all three of them were up in heaven. But what do you get out of Sarah's letter? What do you, what do you notice about her reaction to Jonathan's death? Okay, this has not caused her to doubt God at all. Anyone else? The goodness in God, do you see that? Do you see the goodness? She's not in any way questioning God's goodness, but just sees his goodness in giving him for so long. You know, anyone else? Yeah, and is Jonathan her treasure? What's her treasure? God is. He has her heart and he's still alive. He didn't die. <laughs> so yeah, Jonathan's dead, but God is not dead. He lives still and he has my heart. Okay, so there's no idolatry. She's free of idolatry concerning her husband. She loves him, clearly, but free of, free of idolatry. So let's zero in on, on the statement. Um, and the idea is, we're looking at Burroughs' statement, freely submits to and delights in. Do you see that in, in Sarah's letter, that she's freely submitting to this? Now, delighting, you say, well, how can you delight in that? But I still sense, even though it's painful, like she meets every definition that Burroughs gives. She's, she's aware of what's happened. She feels the weight of it. It's not, a, it's not like she has no idea. But she just goes right at the sadness and all that with her Christian faith. So in the end, there really is a delight, a delight in the goodness of God. But let's zero in on that phrase that I, I focused on. Oh, that we may kiss the rod. This may be one of the hardest uh, phrases for us as 21st century Christians to accept. The rod means the rod of reproof, the rod of chastening or chastisement. That's what it is. So the idea is that a loving father is going to give you a beating from time to time. You're like, wait a minute. I'm saying read about it in Hebrews 12. There is a loving fatherly discipline that the father gives to his adopted children that he does not give to those who are not his children. Those who are not his children, God does the worst thing he can do in this world, and that's give them over to their sin. There is nothing worse God can do to a sinner in this world than pull back and let them do what they want and not in any way restrain them, but then judge them for it on judgment day. That is the worst thing in this world that can happen to any person. As it says in Romans 1, God gave them over to a sinful mind and depraved spirit to do what ought not to be done. Gave them over. So he's just letting them do it. But he will not give his children over. And yet we have this internal corruption, right? We have a sin nature, we have pride, selfishness, we have lusts, we have idolatries. Our, our hearts are a mess. Romans 7 says the very thing we hate, we do. 
and the very thing that we yearn to do, we do not do. That's who we all are. Sarah knew herself to be that way. Jonathan was that way. Every Christian is that way. God will not just give you over to it. So what is God going to do in reference to your internal corruptions and sins? What's he going to do? Stroke you on the head? <laughs> Hug you? No, he's going to chastise you. And what is the nature of that chastisement? How does it actually work in real life? I mean, you don't actually get a beating from God. I mean, what happens? Could we just say anything you didn't want to happen might be a chastisement from God? Anything you didn't want to happen in your life could have to do with your health, could have to do with your professional life, your job, your financial life, could have to do with your possessions, anything. Anything you care about in this world is fair game for um, chastisements from God. That God punishes every son that he, ac he accepts. That's what it says in Hebrews 12, quoting Proverbs 3, that God does this. So do not make light of the Lord's discipline, Hebrews 12, but do not lose heart when he chastises you. So don't make light of it like it's nothing, but don't lose heart either. Don't get depressed or discouraged. Be a child. God's treating you like a, like a son, like a daughter. Sarah knew all that. I mean, she's well instructed. So she's saying, I'm a sinner. I'm here on earth. I'm not glorified yet. God's laid the rod to me. In other words, the death of my husband is a chastisement from a loving father. That's the way she sees it. All right. So what does she do about the rod? Kiss it. What does that mean? You might think, what a twisted thing. No, it's as healthy as you possibly can be. It's about the healthiest you can ever be. It's twisted to kick the rod. That's the twisted reaction. Kick it, right? Kiss it. What, is, what does she mean by kiss the rod? And not just accepts, but she's glad. Do you see? It freely submits to and delights in. So in other words, as Peter said in 1 Peter 4, it is hard for the righteous to be saved. I don't think we fully understand how significant that statement is. It is hard to get to heaven. Through many toils and adversities and hardship, God prepares us for heaven. And so that's the rod. So I'm kissing the rod, meaning I am thankful, delighted in a father who loves me enough to work with my sin and my corruption and not let me stay corrupted, but train me and make me godly. Oh, that we may kiss the rod. Is that all she said? What else? Lay my hand over my mouth. What does that mean? That's quoting Job. Don't complain. Don't murmur against him. I mean, Job did that big time. You know, as we've said before, Job said, if God were here, I would, it, I'm, this is a summation. If God were here, I'd give him a piece of my mind. I would, I would talk to him. What's the topic, Job? What would you talk to God about? Justice. <laughs> oh, really? That'd be an interesting conversation. Let's talk, you and me, about justice. <laughs> and because he feels it's been unjust. But Sarah knows that she has the capability, the capacity to murmur against God. It's in there still. As godly as she was, it's still in there. And she just says, I don't want to do it. It will corrupt me. It will hurt It'll hurt me. It will not glorify God. So I'm just going to lay my hand over my mouth. And notice that it says, oh, that we may kiss the rod and that I might lay my hand over. It's like, I don't know whether I'm going to kiss the rod and lay my hand over my mouth, but I want to. So I'm yearning to have that kind of reaction. So that's it. Conversely, uh, Jonathan did just as well on his end. 
What an incredible couple this was. So this is the doctor, the attending physician who watched him die, Dr. Shippen. And he cared for Jonathan right through his illness into death. Quote, and never did any mortal man more fully and clearly evidence the sincerity of all his professions, his claims to be a Christian, the sincerity of all his professions, by listening to this, one continued, universal, calm, cheerful, resignation and pa patient submission to the divine will. I mean, do you not see how perfectly that quote lines up with what we're studying here? He absolutely, quietly, patiently submitted to what God was doing in his life. Through every stage of his disease than he. Not so much, look, listen to this, not so much as one discontented expression nor the least appearance of murmuring through the whole. And never did any person expire with more perfect freedom from pain, not so much as one distorted hair, but in the most proper sense of the words, he really fell asleep. Death had certainly lost its sting as to him. Boy, it's like, man, I would love to die like that. But here's a guy who had been learning the secret of Christian contentment, like we've been describing here, for decades. And the final exam came on his deathbed, and he passed with A+. Plus. I mean, he just completely submitted to God. So you're like, well, how can I die that well? I want to die well. I really would like to die well. How, can I, how, how do we get to the point where, we could, where that could be said of us, where you realize this sickness probably is going to death. And you end up having a, a, cheer, a cheerful, patient submission under it. How do we attain this? What are your thoughts? Mm. Seek the Lord in his strength or an, and, and his strength. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his, Seek his presence continually. Well, that's beautiful. I mean, that's basically the vine and the branches teaching I was talking about earlier. Seek to have a continual sense of abiding in Christ. I, I think there's, there's, there really could be no better answer than that. All right, example number two is George Mueller. George Mueller was a German man who lived in England um, and who uh, is best known for running uh, orphanages, a system of orphanages in England in the 19th century, around the same time as Spurgeon um, and Hudson Taylor, uh, that cared for over 10,000 orphans in his lifetime. Um, he, is, he was a very disciplined, regimented individual who kept a prayer record, like a checkbook almost, that amounted to over 50,000 answers to prayer in his lifetime. 50,000, over 50 years of praying. So that would be like approximately three answered prayers a day, specific answers to prayer, about food or provision or money or some detail or whatever, and he'd write them down. 50,000. But then his wife got sick, and he prayed, of course, for her healing, and God said no to the healing. And he had the privilege of doing his wife's funeral. And you can well imagine how difficult it would be to get up and speak in a situation like that. Um, but he chose as his text Psalm 119, verse 68. You are good, speaking to God, you are good and do good. So he then broke it out into three points. All right. God is good and did good to bring Mary into his life to begin with. Secondly, God is good and did good to allow Mary to live as long with him 
as she did, similar to Sarah's reaction to Jonathan's death. And then thirdly, God is good and did good to take Mary home to heaven when and how he did. Okay, he saw the goodness of God in all three of those things. Again, before we read the quote, do you not see how healthy this is? That you could actually react to the greatest trial, you could say the greatest trial of your life that you've ever had, with this kind of response. Based on scripture, God is good and does good. Mueller said, the Lord is good and doeth good. All will be according to his own blessed character. Nothing but that which is good, like himself, can proceed from him. If he pleases to take my dearest wife, it will be good, like himself. What, have, what I have to do as his child is to be satisfied with what my father does, that I may glorify him. After this, my soul not only aimed, but this my soul, by God's grace, attained to. In other words, it was two steps. I aimed after this to see the goodness of God in what he ordained here, and I actually attained it. I was able to get there. I, I was satisfied with God. So that's what both of them would say. Sarah and George would both say, in the end, what enabled me to be content is to be completely satisfied with God. All right, so I've already asked some of these questions, but as you read these two accounts, actually three because I added Jonathan as well, um, what do you learn about Christian contentment and how could that help you in your life? You can't, you actually can't, you could attain to this, something you could do. I, I would commend to you the thing that we touched on earlier, the, the phrase of being well-skilled in all this and that you actually get a chance to practice today. <laughs> any chance that you'll get any, uh, you know, to practice Christian contentment today? Well, given the fact that it covers well-fed or hungry, living in plenty or in want, no matter what happens, you have a chance to, to practice it. But it's obviously harder with afflictions, harder with trials. So you could actually pray, say, Lord, would you bring something into my life that I would find mildly difficult <laughs> today? Because I consider myself a, a beginner. I'm not up to the eight hours a day. <laughs> huh? Patriot's Yeah, for example. You know, it's funny. <laughs> You're wanting that affliction to come into my life? Thank you, brother. I appreciate that. Yeah, the funny thing is that it might well be that whatever comes after a prayer like that, like God sends something difficult in my life today and give me the grace to respond well with Christian contentment, is that he might well have sent it anyway. But now that you've prayed, you'll be actually better able to handle it. It's actually better that you prayed. It's not like, all right, you asked for this, whack. I mean, it's not like that's it. It's more like he probably would have brought something like that anyway into your life. But now you're very aware and waiting for it. And when it comes, you're getting your chance to practice. And it is the very thing that we need. I, don't, I think it's pretty clear that Jonathan's reaction to his own death is not something you come at instantaneously. It's clearly a development over years. <laughs> of theology and prayer and, and just the way you walk. So for you to say, I would like to die well, so help me to live well, so I can die well. And living well starts today, so help me to just live with Christian contentment, whatever you choose to bring my way today. I think that would be helpful. All right, so it freely takes pleasure in God's disposal. Um, Burroughs said, not just I see the justice in what God is doing, but I see the goodness in what God's doing. Do you see that in, in George Mueller and Sarah? They see the goodness in it. George openly says it. Only good things can come from that fountain, from God. He only ever does good. I mean, it's just, it's true, but the more you think of it, it's like, yeah, that's right, of course. Anything he says or decrees is good. 
There's just a beautiful goodness to it. Are you going to say something? Well, apparently the letter wasn't for her anyway. It was for us. I mean, <laughs> the historians got it, and, you know, George Marsden put it in his biography, and I read it and wept, <laughs> and I put it in my teaching outline. It's probably going to be in my book on contentment so, because the letter was for us. God wanted it for us. It's incredible. And, and it's a goal. I mean, her level of maturity is a goal for me. I, I'm not there. I'm being honest. But I, do, I believe in incrementalism. I believe in growing, yeah, that you walk before you run. And so just do it today. You know, just say, God, bring me some afflictions and some adversity today. And then just give me the, a heavenly perspective toward it. All right, so you see the goodness and, and delight in it, in every condition, no matter what the afflictions are. All right, with the time that we have left, I want to talk about providence. And it's a very deep topic, and I don't know that we'll, I, I hope we'll get to, to finish it. But I, I don't want to deal with it lightly. This is a bit of an aside it's not in Burroughs' book, but I just think it's foundational. Without a robust, hardy doctrine of providence, you will falter in Christian contentment. Satan will have uh, a, a door, an open door into the citadel of your soul. He'll be able to get in there and, and cause doubts concerning God and concerning his involvement. So we need a robust doctrine of providence. So before we look at what I've written here, what does that mean to you, the doctrine of providence? Okay. The things that God causes to happen in your life. Okay, good. I like that. Anyone else? Providence. God is actively in control of all things. Very, very good. Okay. All right, well, let's look at Wayne Grudem's definition. We may define God's providence as follows. God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that he, number one, keeps them existing and maintaining the properties with which he created them. And two, cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. And thirdly, directs them to fulfill his purpose. So providence is an energetic, active rulership of God over everyday life. It starts with God sustaining the universe in its form that we know. So the, the things that we, who have years behind us now, uh, have grown to learn about the world around us from infancy up, that we have observed, um, hold true. We're not starting from scratch with a new universe every day, but it's, we, there's a memory and a learning of the world that we live in. God sees to that. That's what makes science possible. The fact that things worked in the laboratory 100 years ago, they still work now because of providence. God's upholding things. We believe in a universe that requires the constant activity of God. It's a needy universe. It requires God to send forth will and power to keep the universe existing. So that's the first level of providence. And then he causes the things that he's made with their different attributes to do what they do continually. So the, the sun will give off light and heat and, and a strong gravitational pull on the earth all the time. And God does that. That's not an accident. We're not deists thinking God doesn't, he stays out of it. But he actively causes that gravity to work. And he causes the, the things, the material things and the sentient beings. What we say sentient beings, they're beings that know what they're doing, such as angels and humans. That's, those are the sentient beings causes them to continue with their attributes and activities. And then thirdly, and most controversially, to direct those things, including people and angels, to do things according to his will so that his will happens. 
That's Providence. Now you add to it, it this shouldn't, it's already included, but down to the tiniest detail. That's the thing. That the hairs of your head are all numbered. Sparrows don't fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. It's the detailed, meticulous care. That's the doctrine of providence. Louis Burkhoff said, Providence is the provision which God makes for the ends of his government and the preservation and government of all his creatures. Uh, John Calvin said, uh, God, not, God rules not only the whole fabric of the world and its several parts, but also the hearts and even the actions of men. We mean by providence not an idle observation by God in heaven of what goes on in earth, but his rule of the world, which he made, for he is not the creator of a moment, but the per 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 perpetual governor. Thus, the providence that we ascribe to God belongs not only to his eyes, but to his hands. God's got his hands all over every day. He's not just observing. Um, the English word providence comes from the Latin word pro-video, which means literally foresight. Theologically, however, this doctrine goes much deeper than God's knowledge, foresight of events. That's why Calvin said it's not merely his eyes, but his hands, okay? Uh, but actually, uh, his arrangements of circumstances, materials, and people necessary to bring them about. So you can imagine in an old way of speaking, a boss, a supervisor, a master saying to an underling, such and such and such, such needs to be done, see to it. Now, what do you think see to it means? Watch it? No, do it. <laughs> so that's where you, you want to think of pro video as God seeing to it in advance. Does that make sense? He's seeing to things in advance. He's getting it done. That's what providence means. Uh, John Flavel wrote a book on the providence of God, the mystery of God's providence. He said, it is a great support and solace of the, uh, the saints and all the distresses that befall them here that there is a wise spirit sitting in all the wheels of motion and governing the most eccentric creatures and their most pernicious designs to blessed and happy issues. All right, well, let me just explain some of the words. Eccentric doesn't mean like weird or insane or like has dementia. It means it's out of center. It's like, you know, what, 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 like, a, like a tire that's whacked out, like flat tire, something like that, or it's off center and the thing's going wobbly. I mean, this is a wobbly world that we're living in. Almost all the wheels are eccentric. They're off center. God's running this eccentricity to a logical, wise, good end. That's incredible. He's driving a whacked out car in needing of repair along the road that he's ordained, and we're getting to a finish line. It's just only God could do that. It's remarkable. Uh, to blessed and ha happy issues means outcomes. And indeed, it were not worthwhile to live in a world devoid of God and providence. You wouldn't want to live one day in a world in which providence didn't exist or didn't. You would not want one day. However controversial or difficult this doctrine is for some people, I'm just telling you, you don't want to live in a world where there's not providence. Providence has a universal, effectual, beneficial, and encouraging influence upon the affairs and concerns of the saints. First, universal. Providence acts in and upon all the concerns and interests of the saints. It not only has its hand upon this or that, but in all that concerns them. It has its eye upon everything that relates to them throughout their lives from first to last. Not only the great and more important, but also the minute and most ordinary affairs of our lives are transacted and managed by providence. 
Do you understand how that statement links into Paul saying, I've learned to be content in any and every situation? If you have a doctrine of big providence but not small providence, then you can't be content in any and every situation. You think this thing that's happened is such a small detail, it must escape the king of the universe. But it's causing me a lot of irritation. There is no such thing. Secondly, it's effectual. Providence not only undertakes, but actually perfects what concerns us. It goes through with its designs. It accomplishes what it begins. No difficulty so clogs it. No cross accident falls in its way, but it carries through its design. Its motions are irresistible and uncontrollable. He performs it for us. Do you remember the story Jesus told about counting the cost? No one begins to build a tower without first calculating how much it's going to cost and seeing if he has enough resources. And then if he begins it and it doesn't get completed, a building or something like that, all the neighbors are going to mock him because he didn't plan well. That is not our God. Or a king, seeing an army coming, doesn't count how many soldiers he has and how many he has and say, okay, we have too few, we're going to lose. So he goes out and sends emissaries to sue for peace. All right, now put God in that perspective, the God who counts the cost. He has analyzed what it's going to take to get you saved, to get you to heaven. Can you imagine him running out of resources? Can you imagine him finding that the enemy was too strong halfway through and have to, have to sue for peace and say, I thought I could win this battle, but I guess I didn't. You're particularly hard to save. I mean, I've been saving people for centuries now, but I finally met my match in you. And I'm just not going to be able to finish the good work that I began in you. I can't imagine God doing that. God has counted the cost with, with no problem. He will be able to finish your salvation. He sees it through to the end. And that includes smallest details. He intends something in your life, a, a sub-issue, sub a detail. He'll see it through. And he's able to do it. No one can stop him. So it's uh, effectual. It's beneficial, thirdly. All of Providence's products are exceedingly beneficial to the saints. This is how you freely submit to and delight in what God is doing. Because everything God does is beneficial for you. It performs all things for them. It is true we often prejudge its works and unjustly censure its designs. And in many of our straits and troubles, we say, all these things are against us. Right? We complain and murmur and say, God is against me. He's hurting me, he doesn't love me, he's doing bad things. But you just don't know what you're talking about. God knows exactly what's happening. But indeed, providence neither does nor can do anything that is really against the true interests of the saints. There is nothing but good to the saints in God's purposes and promises. So there is nothing but good in all his providence. That's what George Mueller said. Only good things can come from God. And so toward you. And then finally, it's encouraging what life and hope will providence inspire in our hearts? And what prayers will it cause to rise in us when pressures are against us? This is a very encouraging doctrine. Though it is challenging, it is encouraging. John Calvin said, Ignorance of providence is the ultimate of all miseries. The highest blessedness lies in the knowledge of it. The more you embrace this weighty doctrine, this meaty doctrine, the happier you're going to be. So this is a feeder doctrine or a parallel doctrine for the issue of Christian contentment. You have to believe in providence. You have to embrace the doctrine of providence or you can't be content, Christian content. All right, Heidelberg Catechism puts it this way. What do you mean by the providence of God? Question 27. The almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby 
as it were, by his hand, he upholds and governs heaven, earth, and all creatures, so that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yea, all things that come, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Again, that's just right connected with what we're learning in Providence. Everything, drought and plenty, come from God. Everything. Question 28. What advantage is it to know that God has created and by his providence does still uphold all things? What advantage? Well, answer that we may be patient in adversity. What does that mean to you? To be patient in adversity. Kiss the rod. Kiss the rod. Okay. Not get angry. Say again. Put my hand over my mouth. Be patient. I'm not going to fly off the handle. I'm not going to lose my sanctification. I'm not going to be angry or frustrated or bitter. I'm going to be sweet and trusting. I'm going to be patient however long this thing goes on. And that's the hard part. When you have a chronic illness, like, you know, sometimes it might take two years for a loved one to die. And you're looking at that disease for two years or longer. For you to be patient under those two years, day after day after day, that's a great work of grace. Again, you can see only by God's sovereign grace could this ever happen. All right, then we may be uh, patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity. You know, it says in Deuteronomy 8, you know, after you enter that good land and you start eating crops you didn't plant and living homes you didn't build, you're going to forget me in all your prosperity. That happens in America. We can forget God in our prosperity. Instead, we should be thankful in our prosperity because all of your prosperity has come by providence. God has given it to you for a purpose. And that in all things which may hereafter befall us, we place our firm trust in our faithful God and Father that nothing shall separate us from his love since all creatures are so in his hand that without his will they cannot so much as move. It's a doctrine of providence. Very encouraging. All right, is it taught in Scripture? Yes. <laughs> many, many, many verses teach this. Not one or two. Uh, like concerning Elijah, I have commanded the ravens to feed you. Don't you love that? The birds are going to come and bring you some meat. Do you think you ever asked, like, what was on the menu today? It's like, you know, yesterday you brought some venison. I wouldn't mind if we could try something different, you know. I don't think the birds were listening to him. <laughs> Whatever they brought, he ate. Anyway, it's interesting. Meditate on that one. Uh, the Lord appointed a plant and made it grow up over Jonah. Uh, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant, so it withered. Those two verses are great, aren't they? God appointed the plant. God appointed the worm. It's like, what's the point? He had a point. He was working on Jonah's soul. So the plant and the worm together were, you know, kind of like the old combination, a left or right, and you're down on the mat. Well, God's not trying to lay us low, but it's a combination. The plant grows up, and then he takes the plant away. The Lord gave, and the Lord took away. I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants, Exodus 8, 21. That's during the plagues. He summoned a famine on the land and broke all the supply of bread, Psalm 105, 16. He gave them hail for rain, Psalm 105, 32. He spoke and locusts came, Psalm 105.34. The Lord will whistle for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. That's not literal bees, that's Assyrian troops. I like this one. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Let me tell you something. I was listening to a sports talk radio uh, thing this, this week, and a guy named David Glenn was talking about some athlete, woman athlete, that was blaming God for her injury. And he said... The God that I worship doesn't get involved at that detail level. Injuries, like he really cares who wins a football game. I was talking to the radio out loud. I said, God cares about everything. Of course he cares about sports injuries. Of course he cares about who wins. 
sorry, football games. Um, uh, of course he cares. But the thing is that God's doing things way beyond our, you know. Anyway, David Glenn's God seemed too small. I wanted to call in. I never call in. It's like, you know, but I don't think he wanted to talk about theology. Calvin said, it's not his wheelhouse, Dad. He sticks, sticks to sports. I said, clearly it's not his wheelhouse. The lot, it's like the dice is rolled, and it comes up three or six because God wills. So the next time you play a game that involves dice, don't lose your Christian contentment based on the outcome of the dice. God has willed that you should lose. Think of it that way. Even the wind and the sea obey him, Mark 4.41. He removes kings and sets up kings, Daniel 2.21. Even the unclean spirits obey him, Mark 1.27. He upholds the universe by the word of his power, Hebrews 1.3. And here are many such verses you can read uh, them. They include humans. Uh, look at Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a water course, whichever direction he chooses. I think about that when missionaries are applying to non-Christian governments for visas to enter the country and preach the gospel. It's up to God what that low-level official does. And we pray about these things. Ephesians 1.11, God works everything out in conformity with the purpose of his will. Everything, even to the tiniest detail. Now let me finish by saying some of the challenging aspects to providence. First is the problem of evil. This is the, the hardest for people. A comprehensive doctrine of providence brings us face to face with the problem of God's activity and purpose in devastating events on earth. We cannot avoid facing how a good and loving God can bring about or permit a hurricane or an earthquake or a seemingly random drive-by shooting resulting in the death of a 12-year-old girl who wasn't even involved. How, how do we understand providence at times like that? The Bible doesn't shrink back from the questions by denying providence. That's not the right answer. But we may not always know the answers. We may not always understand. The more detailed is God's involvement in the tiniest details of human life, the more poignant this question becomes. Secondly, scriptural texts, some Bible verses seem to indicate that God isn't in any way responsible for or connected with the evil actions of human beings. Like in Jeremiah 7.31, they have built the high places of Topheth in the valley of Ben-Hinnom to burn their sons and daughters in the fire, something I did not command, nor did it enter into my mind. Problem is the translation. It, I think it literally should say, it didn't enter into my heart. It's not like God was caught by surprise and didn't know they would, they would do this. He knew, but he didn't want them to do it. And that brings us into the difficult issues of God permitting evil, wicked things that he did not want done. They're contrary to his law, but there it is. Then there's the issue of free will. If providence is right, do any of us have any free decisions at all? And we do, but the doctrine of providence uh, is harmonized with that. And then the ultimate issues of salvation. Clearly God privileges some people more than others in the access to the gospel. Some are born in nations previously saturated with the gospel. Before they were born, they were born into the Bible Belt or born in certain places where there are churches everywhere. Other people are born in Muslim nations or animistic countries and they've never heard of Jesus and no one for 100 miles or 300 miles has ever heard the name of Jesus. And providence has, is involved in that. It's not an accident. So all of these things are there. I had a lot of really good discussion questions, but we're out of time. So yeah, go ahead. Right. Yeah, it's a very good question. And I was trying to think as I wrote this outline, what are the things that people have a hard time with? And you know, you're asking about that and that's probably the hardest. Like somebody does something so clearly wicked, violates the laws of God, it's contrary to what God would have wanted. And I think what we, you know, I, it's not easy. I think, first of all, we have to realize if you're asking strategically how do we minister to people, 
we're not just dispensers of truth nuggets. There's a lot of weeping that goes on with this. You put an armor on people. Sometimes you tell them the doctrine three weeks later when they're able to hear it. And for a while, you're just sitting and comforting people. Like Job's friends did very well while they said nothing. All right, that's, if they should have just, just kept on doing that. Um, but if you're asking what's the doctrine of it, I think we, you know, it says I've been sharing, God in some way permits and then uses these incredibly evil things. So we say permits, and I, th I tend to think of sluice gates like water up high, and then he lifts up a gate, and the water flows where it's going to. He doesn't directly force the water. It's human evil, but he's going to channel it, and it's going to go in a certain direction. Another thing to keep in mind, we as Christians believe this world's not all there is. We tend to think of human death as like the ultimate, like, terrible thing, but it isn't. I mean, those people who die, they continue to exist. And so if they're innocent, like babies are different, you know, they go into the presence of God. And so God's good in these things. So we could talk. I actually think we should begin next week by reviewing providence and asking these questions. So let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you for the time we've had to study and to discuss these things. And I pray as we go now uh, into worship, just give us grace to worship you with free hearts. And I pray that all of us who are in this room, who are accountable for the things that we've learned today, that we would begin practicing or renew practicing Christian contentment, trusting in you, whatever you choose to do, and being peaceful and joyful and trusting in God. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.